of all days because today we're going to talk about something that's probably not something that you want to be in church to talk about. Um, we're going to talk about some uh, hardcore theology. Who's, who's into hardcore theology? All right, okay. All right, so they're good. I'm not going to bore all of you. Um, all right, so this, this uh, the reason why we're going to talk about this tonight is because uh, it was requested, believe it or not, I promise. I'm not like just... Um, just doing this. So we're going to talk about uh, what it means to be God's elect, uh, what it means to be chosen by God. Um, before we do that, let's do a couple of things. First, pray, because we're going to need God's help tonight. Uh, so let's do that. Dear Lord, we thank you for the time that we can spend together. We thank you for who you are and for your word, Lord. We thank you that uh, you want to reveal yourself to us. And um, Lord, we just are here and we say we're listening and we say that um, we're ready to um, obey whatever you have to say. Lord, help us be changed by you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so God's elect. Okay, the second thing we're going to do before we dive in is I'm going to tell you a story. All right. If it will help you visualize the story, feel free to close your eyes. Don't worry. I'm not going to like shout at you if I see you falling asleep. You can fall asleep today. It's a permission. Daniel is going to definitely fall asleep because he's got an hour and 40 commute. So, all right. So the story is this. You're on the beach and you see in the far off distance, uh, like really far out into the ocean, you see a guy out there and that guy, he's kind of like waving his arms in the air and you think, oh, you know, he's probably just saying hi to someone on the, on the beach. But the more you look, the more you see him like really struggle to wave harder and harder. And then you see his head go underneath the water. And then you see his head duck underneath the water again. And you realize it hits you. You realize that this guy is drowning. But you're not the only one who's watching this guy. Out of the corner of your, your eye, you see a lifeguard sprint. And they go on their little, uh, you know, canoe thing or whatever they use. And they paddle out to where this guy is. And the waves are really choppy. They're rough. They're, they're, they're hard to get to. And um, uh, so, you know, they can't get really too close because otherwise they might hit the guy with their little canoe thing. And so what they do is they throw a little lifesaver donut thing into the water. And then you see the guy reach out and grab that lifesaver donut. And then you watch as the life uh, guard uh, pulls that person back into the shore. Okay, I've got a question for you, a bit of a philosophical question. At what point was that person saved? What person, at what point did that person actually become saved? Was it when you noticed it? Because, I mean, then you could tell the lifeguard and so... You know, presumably things would have gone all right. Was it when the lifeguard noticed it? Because then, yeah, it's going to be all right. Was it only when, you know, the lifeguard got out to reaching distance and threw the donut into the water? Was it when that guy decided or had the strength or the courage or the ability to reach out and grab that donut? Or was it until he was pulled back to shore? When was it? Okay. It's a rhetorical question, but I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the input. I, I, I pose to you, possibly, we're asking the wrong questions. Okay? All right. We're going we're gonna to dive in. So 
depending on your churchianity and like how you know uh, how long you've been in church and how into the Bible you are and, and all this kind of stuff and how kind of theologically uh, nerdy you are. Um, you may have heard of things like Calvinism before. You may have heard of things about uh, predestination before. You may have heard a bunch of these kinds of things. And they're all very controversial topics. And, um, and uh, so there's a, a bunch of different ways we can tackle this tonight. Uh, but I'll tell you how we're not going to tackle it. We're not going to tackle it by exploring theology, like, you know, here's the points of Calvinism and here's the points of, uh, you know, whatever, Armenianism and all this kind of stuff. What we're not going to do is we're not going to explore it philosophically. We're not going to talk about the nature of destiny and the nature of free will. We're not going to talk about um, uh, the nature of what it means to have an all-knowing, all-powerful all, uh, God. We're not going to talk about it from a, um, from a uh, uh, what do you call it? It's metaphysical point of view. We're not going to talk about it from that point either. We're not going to talk about the nature of time. We're not going to talk about the nature of eternity. How we are going to tackle it is we're going to tackle it from the point of view of the Bible and just the narrative story, what the, what the Bible is actually trying to communicate, the story that the Bible is trying to say. So, you're keen to dive in. Let's do it together. Let's open up. As with all stories, it starts at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Let's have a look. All right. I guess the first and probably one of the most important things to look at here is that when we talk about God's elect, God's chosen people, what we should firstly all realize is that God chose humanity, first and foremost. Okay. Let's have a look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And it says this Then God said, Let us make mankind, let us make Adam, which is the Hebrew word for mankind or humanity. In our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we get six days of creation and then the pinnacle of creation, God creates humanity. And he says to them, you, man, woman, you are created in my image. You were created to reflect me. Um, you were created to essentially reflect me in the way that you rule and you uh, kind of uh, continue this act of creation that I've set in motion. Um, and we're invited, really, to partner with God on this journey, right? It's this, uh, you know, I've started this whole creative process. Now, off you go. The rest of the world, it's all up to you. And I'm right here along with you. So it's this partnership. It's this beautiful image um, to, to go. The dirt and the divine. Um, so this is the ideal state. God chose humanity. It's not that there was a subset. God, God's whole heart and his whole intention was Human beings, I create you all in my image, in my likeness. Let's partner together. Let's have this relationship to make this world a beautiful, wonderful place. And we can see that throughout the rest of the Bible. In Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 to 9, uh, I'll just read it. When I look at your heavens, the psalmist writes, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Put all things under his feet, sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So when throughout the whole of the history of of kind of uh, the, the biblical writings, when people looked at creation and they knew the story of the creator God and his intent for humanity, they looked at it and they said, God, you're amazing. You chose to create us, create us in your image, and then unite us and, and join us with your purposes and your will over this world. That's amazing. That's wonderful. But as with all stories, there's a pivot. There's a turning point. And that pivot, that turning point comes when we rejected God in uh, Genesis chapter 3. If you want to pull it up, let's have a look together. So this is where free will uh, d- kind of cuts into this whole story. We are a people who are created in the image of God, who are created for relationship and union and partnership with God, but God doesn't want to hold you or I hostage. So he says, hey, off you go, do whatever you want. And here's this tree in the middle of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's not good for you. You'll die if you eat of it. But it's there. And we were tricked. And uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we hear this interesting story. And take note of the way it's written, the words that's on the page. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then God goes looking for them and they're naked and they hide themselves from each other and from God. And then eventually God confronts uh, what's just happened, the disobedience, the rebellion. Because you see, it's not just about eating a fruit. It's not just about... Uh, some magical transformation that happened when they just started to munch down on this pretty epic looking fruit. What was going on was what was going on in their hearts. They decided that at that moment, what God had said over their lives was not what they wanted for their lives. What he said about the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that it would kill them, they were like, no, it looks pretty good to me. I don't really trust you, God. I think I'm going to have it myself. And in fact, it looks like I can be, be wiser if I, if I have of it. A rejection, a rebellion. But God, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty and in his love, he says this in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He says to the serpent, because you've done this, curse to you above all livestock, to the, to the snake that, that tricked them. Uh, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now that just might sound like some interesting poetry or like some kind of myth that you might read in a in a book, but this is actually the one of the the first prophecy in the Bible, and that is that at one point evil will be confronted and that the heel of the son of man or, or um, you know, a human heel will cu- uh, uh, crush or, or strike the serpent, but that heel will also be bitten in return. So this is the setup. This is the setup to what it means to be chosen by God. Firstly of all, 
Humanity is chosen by God. Secondly of all, God is intent and, and bent on chasing us even when we reject him and refuse him. Amen. The next bit is that God chooses a certain guy called Abram or Abraham and his descendants. So let's have a look at, uh, open up to Genesis chapter 16. But, and uh, there's a lot to go through. That's why I'm like kind of steamrolling ahead. Okay, so I, I apologize again. You can fall asleep at any point in time. Um, uh, so we, we meet this guy called Abram and he's a dude who is a pagan guy. Like there's no, you know, uh, the world kind of devolves from this point and we get tribes and factions and we have the flood and, and the world is kind of in a bit of chaos and, and it's not going very well. And this pagan dude, Abram, he's living in this pagan city. And then all of a sudden he gets called out by God in Genesis chapter 12. And he's, he's told by God, get out of here. I'm going to lead you to a place. I'm going to give you this place as your inheritance. It's going to be yours. Eventually, your nation, out of you will come a, a nation. And out of your nation will come a blessing for the whole world. Again, echoes of this, uh, this, this Eden-like world. God is like calling him to a new place and to create Eden out of this new place. And to make, essentially, Abram the new Adam and, and his descendants the new... Uh, but guess what happens? Uh, chapter 12 comes along. You read in chapter 15, God makes a, a, a covenant, which is a special word that essentially means a, a promise with Abraham or Abram, as he's known at this time. And then literally the very next chapter, we read this in Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. So God's promising you're going to be this great nation. You're going to have and Abram is old at this point in time. And his wife, Sar- Sarai, as she's known at the moment, is old at this point in, in their life. So Abram's looking around. His wife is looking around. They've left everything to go on this journey to this new land to become a new nation and all this kind of stuff. And they're looking around. They're like, but we're old and we don't have a kid yet. And so we read this story just after God has made a covenant with Abram. And it says this from verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, look, in other words, remember the words. Look now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, as, um, to, uh, to her husband, Abram. Um, I lost my place. Uh, as a wife. So, does that ring a bell? Do you remember those words? Taking the, 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 the fruit giving it and kind of looking at what's wise in our own eyes, rejecting God's call, rejecting the fact that he chose us, rejecting the plan that he has over our lives, the plan he has over our, like what it means to be a human being and saying, no, nah, I don't see this happening. So I'm going to make it happen myself. I, I reckon my plan's pretty good. My plan's pretty solid. If God's not going to give me a, a son, a child, if God's not going to reveal wisdom to me right now, I'm going to take it for myself. I'm going to eat of the fruit. I'm going to, um, you know, unite myself with someone who is not supposed to be the one who God has in mind for me um, to have this child and to be the beginning of the nation. And so a new rebellion, new fall. Where you see, God is still good. 
God is still good and he still persists. He still pursues. No matter what we do, he still keeps going. So you know what? Even, even after they did this and after they have a son by the name of Ishmael, um, uh, God is still like, I will follow through with my promise. And in Genesis chapter 17, uh, Abram, uh, now uh, God actually kind of makes a massive declaration. So again, one chapter later, uh, God says to Abram, I saw what you did. It's not part of my plan. But you know what? I'm going to change your name. You're not going to be Abram. You're going to be Abraham, which means the father of many nations. You're not going to, and Sarah is not going to be Sarah anymore. And she's not going to be uh, her old self. I'm going to make her to someone new, Sarah, a princess. And she and you, I'm still committed to both of you. I'm still committed, even though you're old, even though you've fallen, even though you've rebelled, I'm still committed to you both. And so he says this in Genesis 17 verses 18 to 20. Abraham said to God, so at this point, he's just changed his name. Abraham said to God, oh, what about Ishmael? What that he might live before you. In other words, Ishmael's here. You can choose him. You don't have to, you know, do what you were going to do. You can choose him. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant. This promise that he made with Abraham, he will continue it and establish it with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, God's not going to be heartless. He's going to bless him too. But I will establish my covenant. In verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And one year later, Isaac is born. And Abraham followed through. In fact, uh, the story goes on, and even though Abraham uh, kind of stuffs up a few more times, he eventually uh, does something that we all know him for that sounds crazy and barbaric, but something that was a true test of his heart, which was that when finally this, uh, this boy Isaac was born, God said, sacrifice him. And Abraham went up ready to do that, but uh, God didn't. You know, God was just testing him. So this theme of God choosing the one that you don't expect, uh, God choosing people who aren't worthy and God committing himself to these people is something that you see over and over and over again. Because you know what? Isaac, if we went by the old school laws, he was not the firstborn. Of Abraham, he shouldn't have been chosen. If we went by the old school laws of uh, later on with um, uh, Jacob and Esau, Jacob was the second one as well. He shouldn't have been chosen. In fact, he cheated his way through everything, but God still chose him. Mm. If we keep looking through the Israelites. They kept on turning time and time again from God. They kept on essentially spitting in his face, even after everything he did for them. And yet God continued to just pour out his grace and love on them and try to win them back to him. This is the God that we serve. When you hear someone talk about uh, God from the point of view of some uh, twisted or distant or evil or like, you know, um, machinistic kind of person. The Bible wants to tell you otherwise. The Bible wants to show you this God who is committed to loving you, committed to wooing you, committed to finding the best in you and finding the best in your situation to show you more of him and to show you more of his love. 
Let's keep looking through though, because as we jump in First Chronicles chapter 17, the Israelites, they mess up time and time again, but God finally decides, I'm going to make a kingdom out of you people. I'm going to raise up kings and one great king by the name of David, great name. Uh, what happens is in that ki- that with that king, this king has a heart that's like God's, the Bible says. And so as he looks at at um, Israel and, and he's just being crowned and he, they've just won the Ark of the Covenant back to the, to the temple, to the people of Israel. And these great victories, these great things are happening. And then we read in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 1 to 14, we read that David is sitting in his palace and he's looking around and he's like, I'm in my palace and there's no place for God and the Ark of the Covenant to, to dwell. And he finds this appalling. He finds it like, how can we do this? And so he says to, to Nathan the prophet, he's like, I want to build a temple for God. And then we read this very interesting story from verse 13 in First uh, Chronicles chapter 17. The same night that that happened, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, it's not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I've gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So in other words, (laughs) Siri's got it. She's she's playing the Bible. (laughs) So God here is saying, Thanks, David. It was really nice of you to want to build me a house and everything like that. But trust me, it's okay. I'm fine. But you know what? You know what? Because you're such a sweetheart, in verse 7, Therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, from being a shepherd boy, to be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them. Don't miss the language here. Don't miss the imagery. Where, what else did God plant? Eden. I will plant them uh, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. That violent, ma- violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. There will be a place of peace and prosperity. From that time, uh, I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. So David, you're not going to build me a house. I will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This became the seed of what became known as the Messiah. This is the beginning of that uh, story, that tale. So God looks at David and looks at his heart and says, You from you, from your heart, I will, I will choose to have someone that comes from your line that will be this snake crusher, this, um, this descendant of Abraham that would be, bring uh, um, uh, 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 blessing to the nations, and finally this 
king that will reign over everything and everyone and I will establish his kingdom forever. Time and time again, God pushing, pushing, pushing. But you know what happened? So David had Solomon. Solomon had his son. I'm blanking on his name. And from there, the kingdom of Israel split. It just took two generations. And then after that split of Israel, what happened was you had king after king after king, line of son of David after son of David after son of David, who was a scumbag, who was a murderous uh, whatever, who was a just ignorant and stupid, who lived a short time, who lived really long but was like scared of his life, who was boastful, who was arrogant. And time and time again, every time you're like waiting, when's this king coming? When's this king coming? When's this king coming? They don't come. And in fact, it all leads up to the people of Israel being as exiled because they've rebelled against God and God can't bear it anymore. They've just spat in his face way too much and it needs to be confronted. So they're exiled and you're reading the Bible and you're like, what the heck? Like, what's going on here? God's given up on us. God's not choosing Israel anymore. He's not going to choose to bring about blessing. And then we're introduced to this dude called Daniel, who is a leader, uh, uh, who's an Israelite, but he's also a leader in the, in the Babylonian kingdom where they've been exiled to. And we get this prophecy. Now, just to cut things short, I'm going to paraphrase for you, and maybe I'll just read a key section. But essentially the prophecy is Daniel sees a whole bunch of beasts. Daniel chapter 7, if you want to read it. He sees all these beasts. And they come out of the earth and they come out of the sea and they're wreaking destruction and havoc and they're deformed and they're twisted and they look like animals. And uh, these beasts represent the nations of the world, kingdom after kingdom, empire after empire. You know, they're all destroying and destroying. It's 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 the fall of mankind over and over again. It's choosing to eat of the, uh, the, the tree over and over again. And they're destroying everything in their wake until eventually there's the last beast. And the last beast is the greatest of all the beasts, most terrible of all the beasts. And this is a future empire. And then finally, you see God come, the Ancient of Days. And he comes on his throne, which is wreathed in fire. And God uh, wipes the beasts out wipes the slate clean and says, no more. And then, you could have ended the dream there. Like That's a pretty good ending to the dream. Could have been pretty happy with that. But then we see this in verse 9. I'll read it to you so I don't butcher it. Oh, no, actually in verse 13, so I don't butcher it for you. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man or a human one. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. To him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Does that sound familiar? This is the the Messiah. This is the king that was promised to David. This was the, the one who crushed the snake. This is the one who's promised from the line of Abraham. So even when all looks lost, even when God's people are in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, there's no kind of escape from their situation. They can't see possibly how it could get any better. God's still saying, no, I have a plan. I have chosen you and I will continue to choose you and I will continue to make my will and my way apparent in your life uh, no matter what uh, comes. And then finally, finally, you open up the Gospels 
and we read about this guy called Jesus. And this is a guy who is the son, uh, son of man. He's a human one. We read about him and he, we find out, well, he's an Israelite, so he's a child of Abraham. We find out that he's actually a child of, of David as well. He comes from the line of David. And not only that, but in Luke chapter 9, as Jesus is going around and he's teaching and he's revealing what he calls the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And everyone's trying to like wrap their heads around what he means when he says the kingdom of God is here. Because, you know, like when people think the kingdom of God is here, they think that's it. No more anything. But God, Jesus here is saying, no, no, it's here. It's right now. And so anyway, what happens is as Jesus is going around teaching, we read this story in Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 28 to 36. Um, he took, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on top of a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was changed and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, or the Greek word there is Exodus, um, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, his death, his death on the cross. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him, and as the uh, sorry, and the two men who stood with him, as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, "So you see the scene in your head. You've got Jesus and you've got Elijah and Moses, and they're all glowing white. They're radiant. They're amazing. Jesus is transformed into this." God-like figure, this son of man who ascends to the throne of God. This is, this is the one. The story is making it very clear to you. It's not really hiding anything at all in the language. And they're seeing this and Peter sees that this party is about to break up and he's like, no, no, don't go. Uh, he says, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then all of a sudden, a cloud comes over. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always thought, like, what's the big deal here? Like, why is Peter, like, such a weirdo for saying this? Like, why does God kind of, like, be like, roll his eyes at him? It even says in the text, not knowing what he said. Like, it's kind of like, Peter, just, like, shut up for a second. So, like, what's the big deal? The big deal here is this. Jesus is only here for a time. Jesus is not here for, to hang out and have a party on top of a mountain. Jesus is not here just to be hidden away from no one else and just to have this private party on top. And Jesus is also not here to be included amongst some other famous people. No, no. You, there's no building a tent for Jesus. Jesus is the, the tabernacle. He is the Holy of Holies. He is the one who has come to reveal and to transform this world. And so then what happens is this. The cloud comes over, and if you know your uh, Old Testament, you know that the cloud represents God, the cloud descending on the tabernacle, the cloud descending on Mount Sinai, the cloud, um, the cloud that God is, is in in Daniel chapter 7. And, and the voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was alone. And they kept silent and told no one of what they had seen. When we look at Jesus and we, a lot of Christianity these days uh, is talking about us. It's talking about 
how can I be good? How can I be someone who does my best for Jesus? How can I, that's not a bad thing, by the way. How can I be someone that, uh, you know, reaches and goes here and there and, and, you know, how does God not like me or like, what am I doing? Am I good enough? Am I bad? And, you know, stories like this are in the Bible for one key reason, which is stop looking at yourself. Stop dwelling on yourself in the here and now. Look at Jesus. Because, you see, when we talk about God's elect, when we talk about God's chosen, you know what? There's only one. There's only one who's God's chosen, who's the elect, and that's Jesus. And you see, the whole story of the Bible is gearing up, telling you someone is coming, someone is coming, someone is coming. And then Jesus comes. And then the rest of the story from the Gospels onward is all about being united with him, being found in him, being hidden in him, being atoned for by him, being just swallowed up by his love, being a new creation because of him and his work, right? It's not about us. It's not about whether or not he chooses you or me or whether or not he predestined you or me. It's about what he did in Jesus. It's about who Jesus is and it's about your response to Jesus and what you choose to do with that message and that story and what you choose to do with that relationship. So we read in John chapter 17... We see Jesus' heart for you and me. We see this is the, the Last Supper. This is just before he's about to get arrested. Um, uh, and um, uh, he's praying. He prays for his friends, his disciples. And this is what he says, uh, the last bit of his prayer. Read it for yourself. It's amazing. John chapter 16 and 17. But, um, but this is the last bit of the prayer. It says this in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You know what Jesus is saying here to his disciples through his prayer? He's saying his heart for us, God's heart for us, is that which we see from the very beginning of page one of the Bible, which is a heart to partner, a heart to be united and, and in, in relationship with humanity, a heart that is craving for unity and complete unity. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is, in the same way that I and the Father are one, he wants us to be one with him. He wants you to be a part of the Trinity. Like, does that not, like blow your mind a little bit or freak you out a little bit. Like, that's insane. And God here is saying, I so love you that I want you to be part of me and me part of you. Like, there's nothing that we do that's inseparable. This world that I've created, it was all for you. I want, I want, I want this relationship. And in the, but, but you see, there was, there was a garden at the beginning and there was a choice at the beginning and there's a garden near the end and a choice at the end. The garden is called Gethsemane and Jesus is praying in this garden. And in Matthew chapter 26, we hear about Jesus praying to the point where blood or sweat that looks like blood is pouring from his face where he's essentially having a panic attack. And in this moment when he's contemplating and he knows what's coming, he knows his death is literally a few hours away. In this moment, 
this is when Jesus uh, says these profound words uh, in Matthew chapter 26, verses uh, 39. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And we get a reversal of what we saw on page uh, three of the, chapter three of the Bible, which is finally you're at the tree and you choose to say, no, not the tree, God's will, not my will. And this is why Jesus is worthy. Well, I mean, one of the reasons why Jesus is worthy. The last temptation, he, he overcame it and he went to the cross. And so he is the chosen one. He's the elect. He's the only one that didn't stuff it up. He's the only one that went all the way. He's the only one that through him going all the way, purchased and, and accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for you and me to come back into relationship with God. And you know, the crazy thing about what Jesus does from here is he says, there it is. It's on the table. My sacrifice, my love, what I did for you, it's on the table. It's for the taking. It's your choice whether or not you want to be affiliated, associated with him or not. And then as we look through the New Testament after that, we get the letters of Paul. And this is when everyone starts going crazy about what's the nature of free will, what's predestination. Because Paul keeps using the word predestined, chosen. And everyone's freaking out. But now I want you to hear these words in light of that big story. And we're going to end with this. Okay. So hear these words in light of that story that we just discovered together. You ready? Blessed be. So this is from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 10. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. To break that down in plain English, God has done everything throughout the beginning of the world, all the way to the end of the world and beyond our lives, but in our lives as well. Everything he has done, particularly through Jesus, to bring you in, to draw you in, to love you and to spread his love to others. And if you want it even more plainly than that, here's the message version. And it says this, how blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We're a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. Not just barely free either, abundantly free. 
He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took, such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Amen.